Dave Wurtson begins our study today sharing about one of those special times when all of his extended family gathered around and began to go back through the old pictures. What do your family albums tell about the purpose of your family? Listen as Dave observes the increasing frequency of what he calls kingdom involvement pictures. My sister Betsy had gotten together one of these family albums, but she also, and this might sound like many of you, she also had hundreds of pictures. And they were just free-floating pictures. I mean, they weren't an album, they weren't labeled or anything. In fact, one of the immediate things that began to happen in my dad's life is as we were studying about these various pictures of him getting married and his family developing, we also started to have other pictures. And those pictures, when you put them all together, it said that a picture is worth a thousand words, right? And as we put these pictures together, it began to tell the story of my dad's life. What I want you to think about is this. What do the snapshots of your life tell about the meaning of your life? If we were to put together a scrapbook and we put together a picture album, a photo album of your life, what story does it tell? What does it reveal about what you're living for? In fact, you might want to do this later on this evening. Get your kids around and take out your old scrapbooks and start going through your family stories. Think back through your life and share it with your kids about what's happening. But you know, one of the things that happened in my dad's life is more and more we started to have snapshots of what I would call kingdom involvement pictures. And what it showed us is that the focus was on kingdom business. I would like every one of you to realize, first of all, what the kingdom is. What the kingdom is that you should live for. Second of all, I want you to understand your place in it. And then I want you to think about increasingly making the snapshot of your life and a penetration for that kingdom. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of God, you say, well, Dave, what are we talking about? In order for you to have a meaningful life, you've got to get caught up in something bigger than you could ever imagine. You've got to get caught up in more than just earning a living, putting bread on the table, working your job, or dreaming about working a job. You've got to get caught up in a dream. For example, to give you an idea of the kind of thing I'm talking about, the Beatles were some English boys that began plucking on guitars. They had very new innovative styles, and they, they learned to play new rhythms, and they, they sang with a little bit different twang in their voice from Britain. And they came and they created a phenomenon. But you know what made the Beatles so powerful in our culture? Because they had a dream. They would sing songs like this. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell below us. Above us, there's only sky. Imagine all the people just living for today. You may call me a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Perhaps someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. What are the Beatles saying? They're saying we have a dream. We have a dream that if people would just forget about this eternity thing, if they would just forget about this religious thing, if they just forget about this Jesus Christ thing, then we could really have peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Now, probably most of you reject their idea of the dream, but I want you to know that that dream, that vision of an influence, of a power, of a love that could take place in the world is very powerful. And they're saying that the way to achieve it is to get rid of the Bible, get rid of Jesus, get rid of this heaven and hell perspective, and then we could all be as one. 
Now, what is all that a dream of? It's a dream of a kingdom, of the kingdom of love, of the kingdom of unity. And you're going to hear it time and time again. You hear it in the political realm, just to change gears and talk about a very blatant manifestation of that kingdom idea. After World War I, more than a million German soldiers had died. For four years, more than four years, the elite intellectuals of Europe, of England and of Germany and of France had thrown a whole generation at one another. More than almost a million English soldiers were dead. More than a million German soldiers were dead. There was a young Austrian kid that was working at the end of that war and saw that devastation. And in the interim period, hate began to develop in his soul. And he began to say, listen, there can be a third Reich. The Kaiser's second Reich failed. The Kaiser's attempt to get world domination ended in total disaster in 1918. But I can make a new kingdom. I can make a new world. And he began to preach. He began to preach to hundreds upon thousands of German young people. What did he tell them? The third Reich. Well, it doesn't ring so loud to us as English speakers, but Reich means the third kingdom. We're going to initiate another kingdom. There was the Roman world, the Roman kingdom that generated hegemony over all the world. And the Kaiser tried to recreate the domination of the German people over the whole world. And he was defeated. But I am going to do it. And Aryan supremacy, German supremacy, galvanized the nation. And some of you that are old enough had to go to war because someone had a dream of a kingdom. And we had to thwart that. Time and time again, you're going to have this talk of a kingdom. So what I want to talk to you about today is not something that just needs to be locked up on Sunday morning. You need to think it through because it has to do with what you pour your life into, what you get excited about. If you don't know who Malcolm Muggeridge was, he was an English media guru. In fact, he's the one that made Mother Teresa so famous. He went to India and took a video, made a documentary of of her life. He was an incredible photographer, incredible gifted on TV communication, and he made her a world-renowned figure. All of his life, he was an agnostic. All of his life, he just lived for wine, women, and song, and the big media thing, and making a ton of money, and doing what entertainment can do. But near the end of his life, he began to think. And he realized that he looked back over his life that he had covered. He had seen Stalin come and go. He had seen Hitler strut with his boots across the pages of history. He saw Franklin Roosevelt to change gears and and saw him lead the United States to victory in World War II. He had seen Khrushchev bang his heel on the tables in the United Nations saying, we will bury the United States of America. And he saw Khrushchev bury He saw Nixon come and go, winning one of the biggest victories that an American president has ever made, and then falling in ignominy in in Watergate. And what Malcolm Muggeridge described, as he looked back over his life, he saw all these figures, all these dreams, all these proclamations of the new age and the the new deal and the new kingdom, whatever it's going to be. And they all strutted out in the pages of history, and then they disappeared. They were gone. And Muggeridge began to think, but there's one figure That when you think about time, when you think about history, there's one figure that stands bigger than life above all of time, above all of history. And Malcolm Muggeridge realized that that one man that stands above them all, that never walks out of the pages of history, is a man named Jesus of Nazareth. Just before Jesus went up to heaven, just before he assumed his role at the right hand of God, this Jesus said that I want you to be part of a kingdom. 
If you look at Acts chapter 1, that's where we want to begin. That's where we were talking the last time we were together. Look at Acts chapter 1, and we find the Lord Jesus talking to his disciples about the kingdom. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 1, it says in verse 3 that to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible or convincing proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining the kingdom of God. Now to us, you say, well, why was Jesus talking to them about the kingdom of God? Because the kingdom of God to us is not something that we often talk about, we often think about. But I want you to think about it because I believe that in order for the snapshots of your life to have the big picture, in order for your life to have a story, to have meaning to it, that you've got to get a hold of this idea of the kingdom of God and what it really means. And the disciples, after Jesus was talking to them, the disciples asked Jesus a very, very important question in verse 6. It says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to what? Tell me. To Israel. Now, why would they ask if Jesus was going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because in the Old Testament, what you need to understand is that the story of the Old Testament is about a kingdom. God chose the Jewish people. And God promised that through this Jewish people, he would eventually set up a kingdom of peace on planet Earth. King David, when he finally conquered Jerusalem, delivered it from the Jebusites, and was able to set up his kingdom, David had a tremendous dream. And one day in 2 Samuel, the Lord God came to David and said, David, I'm going to make you an eternal kingdom. There will never fail from your line a male heir. And the dream began a revelation from God of a kingdom centered in Jerusalem with a son of David ruling on the throne of Jerusalem. And one day there would be peace on earth, good will towards men. When you read the prophet Isaiah, all of you have read those famous passages like in Isaiah chapter 9 and, and culminating the book in 66. It talks about a day when lions will lie down with lambs. It talks about when they'll take their weapons and beat them into plowshares. They'll just do farming instead of war. It talks about a day where there will be no longer any disease. How many of you have read those passages in the Old Testament? You all have. What's it talking about? To a Jew, to an Israelite, it talked about a literal kingdom on planet Earth when a son of David would rule from Jerusalem and he would rule over all the nations and all the nations would stream to Jerusalem to enjoy this utopia, this peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Now, all of history is a conflict between who's going to really rule in Jerusalem, who's going to really set up the kingdom. And what we need to understand is that when Jesus came to this world, Jesus did not say, well, those ideas from the Old Testament weren't true. They were inaccurate. It's never going to happen. It's just a, a dream, kind of a mystical idea, and it, it helps people to get excited, but it's really not true. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said from the very beginning of his ministry, in fact, I'm going to tell you that before he was born, as he was conceived in the Virgin Mary, the kingdom idea, the old Davidic idea was very, very powerful. I want you to realize that it's very, very powerful in the world today. I want you to turn back just so we can get a feel for how this kingdom idea began to develop in the life of Jesus. Turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 32. It's in the Christmas story. And because it's in the Christmas story, you might have been so interested in opening your presents that you didn't really listen to what Dr. Luke was saying. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, it says this. And we'll go back to verse 30 so you'll have the context. The angel Gabriel, the angel whose name was Gabriel, the messenger of God, said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
For you have found grace. You've found favor with the Lord. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will give birth to a son. You'll bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, you've all heard that. And you've all heard about the fact that this little baby born is going to be Jesus. And, and what does the name Jesus mean? The name Jesus in Greek, also in Spanish, Jesus, it means the Savior. The word Jesus is from Yeshua in, the, in Hebrew. That means the Savior. We all understand that. But you might not have read the next verse. Look what the next verse says. It says, and he will be what? Great. The Beatles thought they were great. But you know what? Mary's baby is a lot greater than the Beatles ever dreamed of being. There's one that's greater. Jesus is great. There will come a day as the Lord tarried where you'll say to a popular audience in America, you know, Tom Cruise. And they'll go, who's he? I know that that happens. I, we bought Bobby Richardson in. Bobby Richardson was a, an all-pro second baseman for the Yankees. When the Yankees were, were the domination of all of baseball, it was when Mickey Mantle played in, and Roger Maris. And as a kid, Bobby Richardson was a household name. He came to visit me at Word of Life and to be with my dad. And I brought him over to the teenagers. I was speaking to about 600 kids in the morning. And I brought him over to the meeting. And, I, and we introduced to the kids, hey kids, we've got a, a world-renowned, we've got a Hall of Famer baseball player, Bobby Richardson. You know what? Those kids could care less. Their attitude was, who's he? It just shows you, here today, gone tomorrow. Because they forget. But you know what? There's one person in the stage of history that is great. He was great when he was born. He was great in his life. He's been great for almost 2,000 years now. And he's going to be great forever and ever. And that's the one I want you to sing about. That's the one I want you to dance for. That's the one I want you to live for. That's the one I want you to get excited about because he will be great. Notice what it says in the next part. And he will be called the son of the highest. He's going to be none other than the son of God. And the Lord God, his father, will give him the what? The throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever and ever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. What I want you to see, and you're going to need to think about this clearly, and you're going to have to decide whether you're going to believe it. But the Bible teaches very strongly that Jesus is the Jewish king who one day will reign over a Jewish city named Jerusalem. And all the nations one day will all gather, not because the Jews forced them like the Germans tried to do in World War II, but because the king of kings has come and he powerfully like a magnet draws everyone to himself by his power and by his grace. And you've got to believe that. Is that a big picture? How many of you think that's a big movement, thinking about one day all the world focused on the reign of Jesus Christ, the son of David? That's the big picture, okay? You say, well, Dave, what does that have to do with Jesus' life? As Jesus began to develop his ministry, Jesus believed what Gabriel said about him before he was born. Because when Jesus started ministering in the first century, now you can make up what you want to about Jesus, but if you really want to know what Jesus was like, you have to read this book. If you open up, just turn over, flip over a few pages to Luke chapter 8, verse 1. And you'll read that as Jesus went from one city to the next, he did something very important. Look what it says in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass afterward that he, that is Jesus, went through every city and village 
preaching. I don't think of Jesus getting up behind a pulpit and banging the Bible and like, you know, preaching the way we think of preachers. Jesus is like an itinerant teacher that's going from one town to the next. And the word preaching means to proclaim a message. It means to sound out a message. So he's talking to people and he's bringing, and the King James says glad tidings. He's bringing good news of what? Right to the next part. Of the kingdom of God. And the twelve are with him. So what did Jesus do in his earthly ministry? He went everywhere. And what did he proclaim? He proclaimed the kingdom of God. So I want you to see that Jesus' earthly ministry was a ministry of going around Israel, sharing the message about the kingdom. I want you to see that Jesus announced it. It was announced by angels. It was announced by Jesus. But I also want you to see that it's a kingdom of good news. Just look at chapter 8. Verse 1, where it says, bringing the glad tidings or the good news about the kingdom. You know, I think a lot of us, in fact, I would be willing to bet that if you went into your job, if you went into your school, and you asked your fellow citizens, your friends, about Jesus, and asked them what kind of news that Jesus brings into someone's life. Like if someone decides to accept Jesus and to let Jesus into their lives, ask your unbelieving friends, whether they think that that means your life will be more full of joy, more full of fun, more full of happiness, more full of good times, more full of hope, ask them what they think. And most people will think, absolutely not. You know, that's why I don't want to receive Jesus, because if I let Jesus in, it'll be bad news. Ultimately, it will be good news, because I'll get to go to heaven. But, but I don't really want Jesus in too early, because he's really not such good news. And that's a terrible lie that Satan's told the world. Satan has foistered an incredible lie that Jesus is about austerity. Jesus is about dark black coats and wearing long faces and, and never singing, never having any real celebration in your life. And I want you to realize that the real kingdom of God is just the opposite of that. The real kingdom of God was good news. In fact, you know what? It's good news about the most incredible things that could ever happen. Like, look at some of this good news. Turn over to, uh, let's look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then he called his twelve disciples together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey. And then he talked to them about the fact that the Lord would provide provision for them. Now, just think about this. In Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the Lord said, first of all, that he gave those that were members of his kingdom authority over demons. Now, what do demons do? Demons are the the henchmen of Satan. They're those that go out into all the world and deceive people to live for things that will not last, to live under the control of things that will dominate their life and destroy them. Demons, for example, in in the New Testament record, demons cause severe hallucinations, They cause people to jump into the fire, for example, totally uncontrolled, just suddenly to lose control and to to burn themselves hardly. Now, does that sound like a really good way to live? How many of you think, man, just live for demons? That would be the greatest thing to live for. You think that's a good way to live? Is that good news? No, that's bad news. As our kids begin to develop, as they begin to move through school, they start to make decisions. I've seen kids that decide there's excitement with the demons. There's fun in getting involved in 666. 
In fact, even when my dad was dying in intensive care, I'd share with you how one of the nurses said, I'm not into the Jesus thing. I'm not on that guy's side. I'm on the 666 side. And what he was saying was that I don't live for Jesus. I live for the satanic side. And there's power on that side. But I want you to know that there's not good news on that side. You need to really think that through. Satan will tell you lies. He creates an illusion. He creates a veneer. And then he sucks the life out of you. And I've lived long enough to see him actually do that in people's lives. They'll they'll give them just an incredible good time. They're having wild parties. They're having exciting times. But in the end, their, their physical bodies are burned up. They're burned out. They're sick. Their emotions are right on the edge. They don't have any hope. They don't have any peace. And in the end, they're just hung out to dry. That's bad news. That's really bad news. And Jesus is saying that part of what his kingdom is, it's deliverance from that kind of influence from the evil one. The second thing is, it's cure from your diseases. When we talk about praying for Bill and Mary Lou, and we're praying for their body to be set free from malignancy, is that good news? That malignancy invaded their bodies? Like, if I were to ask, wasn't that the most exciting good news that you ever received when the doctor said, hey, your, your test results are zip. They're not too good. You've got a malignancy. And boy, I'm sure Bill and Mary Lou said, praise the Lord, I'm so excited about cancer. Baloney. It's like a sledgehammer in your life. Forever changes the way you look at life. And life becomes very fragile, which it is, by the way, anyway. It's always fragile. But malignancy is not a good thing. You know what Jesus declares? Cure from disease. In fact, there was a day in the ministry of the Lord when Jesus went to his hometown at Capernaum all day long and into the night they brought all who were sick and all who had demonic influence. They brought all of them to him and he healed them. You know what the kingdom of God is? You know what the kingdom we're talking about? It's the kingdom about a savior who ultimately has power over all the evil all the malignancies, all the physical, spiritual things that are wrong in this world. Now, which side do you want to be on? And one of the things I want you to get a hold of, do you believe that you're praying that you are a son or a daughter of God, and as you talk to your father, you can move his heart, and his son wants to respond to you, and he has the power. He could just reach down and heal. He has that kind of power. If you start to believe that that's what the kingdom of God is, and that the kingdom of God dwells within you, and that one day, like for example, right now there's times where God's will isn't done on earth as it's done in heaven. There's times when that's so. And there's times when we don't understand. There's times when we have to wait. But what the kingdom of God, the promise of the kingdom is, that ultimately Jesus, because he is a good king, will resolve things. One day the malignancy will be gone forever. One day the death will be gone forever. One day there will be a kingdom where pain is lost forever. One day tears are washed away. And what the Lord just wants you to, he challenges you to say, yes, I'm going to believe in that kingdom. That's what I want to live for. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. And what the Lord does in our midst right now is sometimes he gives us little eruptions of his kingdom. Little glimpses into eternity of what it's going to be like. That's what a healing is. A sudden healing is when the Holy Spirit chooses in his power to help us to capture a little glimpse of what it's going to be like forever and ever and ever. And it's an incredible thing 
to believe, when you start to believe, yes, I believe that there is coming that kingdom, and I'm right now the representative of that kingdom. Okay? There's something else you need to understand about this kingdom, because a lot of people are confused of it. In fact, a bunch of people went down to Waco because they said, well, the kingdom has come, and David Koresh is going to be the new savior. You know what? You could have been protected. You don't have to go to Waco. You don't have to travel up to Montana. You don't have to go to the deep parts of the mountains of Tibet to meet some guru. You know why? Because Jesus has told you the next time that he comes physically, no one will be able to miss it. I want you to look at Luke chapter 17. And let's look at how we can identify the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 17. And in verse 20, we read these words. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. You have it? Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God does not come with observation. The idea there is you're not going to bring this kingdom because you studied all the feasts of the Old Testament and you could figure out exactly the dates so you can say, well, Jesus is going to come during the Rosh Hashanah festival in the fall. You're not going to say that because Jesus is saying that you're not going to be able to figure out when the kingdom comes. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said it's not for us to know the time or the date when Jesus will come. But we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us to be witnesses. So we're not going to know. Anybody that says, I know the date, or I'm the Messiah, come and follow me. I want all the young people, I want all of you as adults to realize you can be guaranteed that that's a lie. It's not the truth. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Because the next time Jesus comes, there will be no mistaking him. The next time Jesus comes in the flesh, nobody will miss it. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Look what it says. It says here in verse 22, Then he said to his disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. In other words, there there will come a day when you will want to walk with me again. You will want to hear me again. You will want to physically be with me again. You will want to see One of those days when I was here on earth, but you will not be able to be because I will be gone. I will have ascended into heaven, in other words. But look what he says. And they will say to you, during this time of my absence, they will say to you, look here or look there. In other words, they're going to say, hey, I found the Messiah over here. I found the Messiah over there. And that's going to increase, I guarantee you. You're going to have more false prophets. If German young people would have listened to this, Back in the late 30s, there would not have been World War II. But they didn't listen. Hitler said, look here. We can do it. We can bring in the kingdom. And instead of listening to what Jesus said, they listened to what Hitler said. To their death. Because it was a lie. It was deception. It was demonic. It ended up with incinerated for 6 million Jewish people. And millions of soldiers died in the battlefield. Because when man says, look here, watch out. Jesus said when they say, look here or look there, don't you look. Why don't you have to look? Look what it says. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under the heaven and shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. How many of you have ever seen a a thunderbolt go across the sky? How many of you have ever been out maybe at a soccer game with your kids or you've been in a ball game or something and suddenly a thunder and lightning storm comes up and you see this great big bolt of lightning go across the sky? Have any of you ever seen that? Now, does anyone sit there in the stand and say, what was that? I wonder what that was. When a lightning bolt hits, everyone knows it. The next time Jesus comes back to set his foot on the Mount of Olives, which is the time at the end of the tribulation period, one thing I want you to nail down right now 
is whenever someone says, I'm the Messiah, or I met the Messiah, and I've seen him, and he's over here in Montana somewhere, or he's over in Waco, or he's over in Tibet, you need to say, wait a minute. The next time he comes, it's going to be like a lightning bolt. No one will miss it. You say, well, David, that's the way it's ultimately going to be. And we're going to learn in Daniel and Revelation that there's going to come a day where like a lightning bolt, Jesus comes back, and everyone will be forced to bow. Everyone will be forced to kneel. The Beatles will be kneeling. All the rock stars that preach other gospels will all be kneeling. If they don't receive them as their savior, they'll be forced to kneel. Then they'll be banished forever and ever and ever. It's going to be a, a tragic dividing line. And that's kind of authority Jesus has. But right now, right now, Jesus isn't forcing them. Because right now, if you look at Luke, it says something very, very important here in this passage in Luke. It says in Luke 17, something very, very important. Look at verse 21. It says, The kingdom of God has not come by human will or by human observation, by human speculations, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, read the next part. The kingdom of God is, tell me. Let's read that again. The kingdom of God is, where is the kingdom of God today? Everyone say that again. Where is the kingdom of God today? It says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. You say, Dave, what are you talking about? You see, there are two phases to the kingdom of God. To understand God's plan for the world today, you need to understand these two phases of the kingdom. One phase is a physical phase. That physical phase was initiated in Jesus' first coming. When he was here on earth, the kingdom was visibly present, physically present. And Jesus as the king could just touch eyes and could just touch bodies and they would be able to see and able to live, even if they were dead. And Jesus showed us the power that he has. And it was the physical kingdom. Then he said, after I die and rise again, I'm going to go up to my Father in heaven. And that's going to initiate a period where the kingdom will not be an external kingdom. You won't be able to go to Jerusalem and go to the court of Jesus Christ. Instead, Jesus said he was going to initiate a very special time in the course of human history. It was a time where Jesus would go into the internal hearts of men and women, just normal men and women, just like you and just like me. And he would reach out into the world and they would tell a message about the fact that Christ died for them to express his love, to provide forgiveness. That they would tell others that Jesus Christ has given proof that he can conquer death because he himself did it. And these representatives will go into all the world with that good news. And as they go, at times he will give them glimpses of the great eternal kingdom that they, that they represent. Sometimes they'll pray. Like when you go into a hospital room, do you ever stop and think about the fact that you're a kingdom representative? You are a son and daughter of the king. The power of the Holy Spirit rests upon you. And so you can talk personally to your dad. And don't demand him to do things. Don't go in there like a belligerent son that stamps his feet and pounds on his chest and says, Dad, you need to do what I want you to do. That's not a humble child of God. But you know, it'll make a difference when you pray. You might have a clergyman next to you and they get out their little prayer book and they read the little thing and then you pray, but you really connect because you believe the kingdom of God dwells in your heart, the spirit of God is upon you because you received him into your life when you were born again. So when you pray, it's personal. It's connected. It's real. 
And when you talk things over with your Heavenly Father, as you listen to His voice in the Word, the whole thing is very intense and very real and very personal. Do you realize the influence that you will have if you start to do that when you visit some of your friends that you work with or go to school with and you have that kind of an intimacy with God? You know, tomorrow as you go to work, some of your friends at work are going to say, right when you get in, you're having your coffee when you first start, and one of your friends is going to say, man, my life just cracked. You will not believe it. I had an accident this week, and my car is totally demolished, and my insurance company's not going to settle. And you become a person and say, well, listen, would you, I'd love to talk to the Lord Jesus about that. And just ask that, that he will try to help you to work through all those things. I'll pray about that for you. And if they're just a secularist, don't pray with them right then. Because that will make them be really uncomfortable. But later on, say, I want you to know that I've been talking to the Lord about that. You know what you're doing? You're going kingdom public. The internal kingdom within you, you're going public about it in the marketplace. You know what? There's tremendous power in that. You're going to start to have people that come to you and say, hey, you're weird. Can I go to lunch with you? And when you're going to go to lunch, you say, well, I don't, you know, I don't really like being called weird. You know, why do you think I'm weird? Because you've got this God connection thing. There's an intimacy. There's a closeness. I don't really feel that with God. You know, I, I'm into this church thing, but it's this real thing, this genuineness thing, this authentic thing. Tell me about it. And people will start talking. I'm not the one. I'm not the one alone who proclaims the kingdom of God. You are. What I want you to get a hold of, I want the snapshots of your life to start to become pictures of you every single day that we can get a few snapshots of you representing the kingdom. You know why I want you to do that? Because I want, when your picture album's complete, I want your picture album to be filled with pictures that will last forever and ever and ever. I want you to be able to grow old, that the Lord enables you to grow old, with a light that's filled with pictures that have eternal significance. You say, Dave, why do you want that for us? Because that's what your heavenly daddy wants for you. It says it's not for us. Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has ascended to heaven, the disciples are sitting there looking up, and I love what the angels say. You know, the disciples are looking up, and the angels are looking down, and the angels looked at them and said, why are you guys standing around? And I think that's what the angels are asking the church today. Why are you guys standing around? You know, why are you just sitting there looking up? And the response to that question needed to be, that what the angels were telling them, listen, don't stand there looking up. The Lord Jesus is coming back. You don't know when it is, but you can be sure that just as he went up from you into heaven, he will come back. But your job is not to stand there looking up. Your job is to go. Your job is to go into your Jerusalem, into your Samaria, into your Judea, into all the world. And what we're going to do, the next time we get together, we're going to ask the question, well, why should we do that? Because people are lost. People are lost. And we're going to look at what the Word of God says about the condition of an unbelieving heart. How lost are the lost? And I believe that for the most part, a lot of Americans don't feel that anyone's lost. And we don't have any passion about it. We could care less. You know, let the hot and tots do whatever they want to do. If you get a hold of your mission is to go into all the world and represent the kingdom of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And you start to get radically committed to that. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you might be going through, it's bigger than your job, it's bigger than your health, it's bigger than everything, then you're going to start taking snapshots that have eternal significance. You'll have the big picture.